Today, it's official. Ketanji Brown-Jackson will be President Biden's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled by the extraordinary honor of this nomination, and I am especially grateful for the care that you have taken in discharging your constitutional duty in service of our democracy with all that is going on in the world today. Jackson is a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals. She is a former clerk for Justice Stephen Breyer, whose seat she would be filling. If she's confirmed, she will be the first former federal public defender on the Supreme Court. And she will be the first Black woman. At a ceremony at the White House on Friday afternoon, she talked about the trailblazers who came before her and what her nomination represents. I can only hope that my life and career, my love of this country and the Constitution, and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Thank you again, Mr. President, for this extraordinary honor. Now that Jackson is the nominee, Senate Democrats are moving fast to get her confirmed as quickly as possible. Dick Durbin, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, has said publicly that he wants this done by Easter recess, which is scheduled to start on April 9th. Democrats have the votes that they need to confirm Jackson, so it might not even be in the interest of Republicans to put up much resistance, especially because it won't change the balance of power on the court. But issues will get raised about Jackson's background and her career, about her decisions as a judge, and about how she would view her role on the Supreme Court. So today, we are going to talk about those issues. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, February 25th. Today, we have an interview from our friends at the Post Politics podcast, Can He Do That? It's a deep dive into the life of Ketanji Brown Jackson and what brought her to this moment. And later in the show, we've got a dispatch from Ukraine, where Russian forces are pressing closer to the Ukrainian capital. I cover the courts, and I've been following uh, the career of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. That's Anne Marimo, who covers legal affairs for The Post. She spoke to politics producer Sharla Freeland about Jackson's personal history and what she would bring to the court. Yes, so I've been following her on the district court, but because she was a candidate for the D.C. Circuit before the Senate um, just a year ago, there is a huge amount of information um, that was turned over to the Senate. So over a thousand pages of speeches and articles and appearances. So that's really a helpful place to start. And she's often called on by Black student law associations to talk about her path. And so we really started with her words. Let's start at the beginning of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's life. Where did she grow up? Where is she from? Yes, as she says in many speeches, she's a child of the 70s. She was born in D.C. in 1970. And then her parents moved the family to South Florida so that her dad could go to law school. And as a young child, she talks about having her coloring books at the dining room table while her dad was studying for law school. How influential was that move from Washington, D.C. to Florida? 
She calls herself a Miami girl, and that's where she grew up, going to junior high and high school, and she's still very much in touch with all of those friends. She was the class president, elected three times, and still organizes the reunions, very much a child of of Florida and the Miami suburbs. She was definitely a bright star in high school. Was law always the plan, or did she have a different career path in mind? Yes. If you look at her high school yearbook, she was, again, the class president and really a a debate champion um, and part of what they called the Hall of Fame. And in it, it says that she hopes to have a career in law and a judicial appointment. So she was very focused and, again, says that seeing her dad studying for law school was really influential on her. (laughs) So she was really good at manifesting. I could probably take a few cues from her. (laughs) All of us. Yes. Very goal-oriented. You mentioned that she refers to herself as the child of the 70s. Her parents were civil rights activists, and they expected her to be part of that movement as well. How prominent were her parents in the civil rights movement, and what did she learn from them? Well, her parents experienced segregation in South Florida and attended historically Black colleges and universities and came to D.C. uh, because of opportunities there. Um, And they started their careers as public school teachers, both of them. And they really expected their daughter to um, kind of reap the benefits of the civil rights movement and made sure she knew from a very young age that her path was clear if she just worked hard um, and was disciplined and that any opportunity was available to her. She went on to attend Harvard for undergrad and would go on to attend Harvard for law school as well. You wrote about a defining experience for her in undergrad when one of her classmates hung a Confederate flag from his dorm room window. Can you tell me that story and what was Brown Jackson's reaction? Yes, so she was a freshman at Harvard and a new member of the Black Students Association living in a dorm around Harvard Yard with all of the other freshmen when, as you say, a classmate hung a Confederate flag outside the window. She joined the protests, the sit-ins, handing out flyers. But she also felt um, deeply concerned about this. She thought that while she was spending time protesting and making the university know that their response was as not as robust as she had hoped, she was also not spending time in the library on her studies. And she felt like this was exactly what the classmate who hung that flag outside his window had wanted for she and her fellow members of the Black Student Association to be distracted. And that's something she talks about a lot, the need to stay focused on your goal and not distracted, to recognize the reality when there are slights and you need to stand up for yourself, but also to stay focused on what she wanted to do. Was that a harsh reality, a harsh contrast from the idea that her parents planted in her head that her path would be more laid out because of the work that they did for her? I think she knew from a young age, even in high school, she talks about um, a guidance counselor telling her that she should not set her sights so high on Harvard. She talks about a drama club teacher who told her that she should not try out for a play because it was about a white family and she would not get a role. And she continued to try out for plays, so she stayed focused and she was aware of, of the reality along the way. What did her work at Harvard as an undergrad reveal about her perspective on the justice system? What did she learn there about the flaws that exist within our justice system? 
Yes, so at Harvard, she had lots of diverse interests. Um, She also was involved in theater there, improv, but she, for her senior thesis for the government department, really delved deeply into the criminal justice system. She had spent a summer working for a public defender's office in Harlem and began to develop a sense of problems with the justice system, and in particular, the process by which defendants are sort of pressured, she said, into taking plea agreements instead of going to trial and airing all of the facts, and this really troubled her. So she did a a lot of research um, and came to the conclusion that there was too much pressure on defendants to take plea agreements. But in typical fashion, she also found sort of a a middle path and said, you know, the plea agreements are too much a part of our process to get rid of them altogether, even though she thought there was some unfairness and coercion in the system. And on that note, Judge Brown Jackson differs from other Supreme Court justices in that she spent two years working as a public defender. Has she spoken about her time as a public defender and how that shapes her legal opinions? Yes, she's had a really diverse legal career, um, spent time in private practice. She was a law clerk to three federal judges, including for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, the man she would succeed. But also, yes, two and a half years as a public defender. This is defending poor, indigent criminal defendants on the front lines. And this is a really unique experience. Not since Thurgood Marshall has there been a justice with really deep experience. And that brings a different perspective. She understands um, what it's like to be on the other side of the government, um, the government's evidence, and how to try to defend these, these clients and their rights. So she definitely took some alternative paths in her career compared to her colleagues or her potential soon-to-be colleagues. How did she climb the ranks of the justice system from becoming a judge through D.C. Circuit Court and now a Supreme Court nominee? Yeah, so after um, working in the Federal Public Defender's Office in D.C., where she represented detainees at Guantanamo Bay um, and other criminal defendants, she spent time on the U.S. Sentencing Commission, the bipartisan multi-member commission that shapes federal sentencing policies. Um, And this was really formative as well. This board decided while she was a vice chair to retroactively apply lower sentences. And that meant that tens of thousands of federal inmates were eligible to be released early um, from prison. And I thought one of her most powerful um, speeches at that time, she talks about the disparity in federal sentences for people convicted on powder cocaine charges versus crack cocaine charges. It disproportionately affected African-American inmates. And she spoke powerfully about the need to get rid of that disparity and um, have less severe sentences. How did she come to be on President Biden's radar? Yeah, so in 2012, after serving on the U.S. Sentencing Commission as a pick of President Obama's, he then asked her to serve on the district court, the trial court in D.C., and she spent eight years there handling a wide variety of cases involving criminal defendants, white-collar defendants, disputes between Congress and the president, and she wrote some major opinions there. Um, And it was after that period that President Biden tapped her um, just a year ago to serve on the really influential uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the the D.C. Circuit, which has often been a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. As you said, she clerked for Justice Breyer. Do we know if that influenced her being a pick? Did he have a little wink-wink, nudge-nudge to Biden? I don't know that, but I know she considers him a mentor, and he thinks very highly of her. Uh, When she was first sworn in as a federal judge um, in 2013, he was the one who delivered the oath and talked about Judge Jackson and her ability to really see both sides And that's what he said would make her a good judge. 
And she will be making history. She will be the first Black woman Supreme Court justice if confirmed. Does she feel a weight or a pressure or is it more of an excitement? She was considered previously by President Obama, and I know her daughters were very young and excited at the time about that. But I know she feels a lot of pride in her family and her background. And of course, to make history would be remarkable. The image of the Supreme Court as a non-political entity has been important to many of the sitting judges, but we're kind of starting to see a tide change on that. And with Judge Brown Jackson, we know, at least outside of her work on the bench and in her personal life, what some of her politics are. Are her personal politics going to bleed over into how she is as a judge on the Supreme Court? So yeah, she's definitely talked about problems with the criminal justice system that have been recognized widely. Um, The disparities in sentencing have been embraced on a a bipartisan basis. But I would say she's been careful um, not to take positions on things like affirmative action, for instance, um, when she's served on the board of Harvard to say, you know, I'm a sitting judge. These are issues that come before the court. And I'm not going to state my personal opinion. And when she's been before the Senate in the past for confirmation hearings and they asked her about various positions. She says, you know, I know what my role is as a judge and I can put aside any personal beliefs. They have nothing to do with how I look at the law and the facts. I want to talk a little bit about some of her appearances before the Senate. She sat down in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee for her confirmation to the D.C. Circuit Court. She was grilled by conservatives on the committee, but ultimately confirmed. Can we expect her to receive the same grilling this time around, maybe even more so? Yeah, I was pretty surprised. I watched a lot of confirmation hearings uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and this was one was pretty uncontentious for the D.C. Circuit, and she ultimately won support from three Republican senators, Lindsey Graham, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins. Of course, the Supreme Court is a whole different level, and so she will get even more scrutiny. But one of the reasons Democrats are trying to move so quickly here is because they still do have a slim majority and don't necessarily need Republicans. Republicans. I think President Biden has made clear he would like to have bipartisan support for his nominee, but it's not necessary. Does she have any controversial rulings in her past that we can expect her to be grilled on? Absolutely. She'll be questioned about one of her longest opinions she wrote as a district court judge. This was a battle between Congress and former President Trump. Congress was eager to hear from Trump's former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and Trump went to court and said, no, um, you, you can't subpoena my top advisor. This was a battle that went on and on. And Judge Jackson said she sided very strongly with Congress's investigative powers and said presidents are not kings. And so I think you'll hear senators, especially on the Republican side, asking her again about this opinion. Speaking of opinions, she's known for her lengthy opinions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, She's someone who's incredibly thorough, does her research, and wants to make sure all of the facts are laid out. And that has led to some criticism that her opinions are are too long. Um, But she's just trying to put everything she knows out there and to explain things thoroughly. She does care a lot about her opinions being easily understandable by the public. That's one thing she thinks about often about are her former clients, criminal defendants who didn't know a lot about the legal system. And so she's thinking about how can I explain this to a broader audience? I want to circle back to her personal life. What does that look like now? Her husband, her kids, extended family? 
Yes. So she met her husband as an undergraduate at Harvard. She talks there about their differences, uh, her family descendant from slaves and her husband, sort of a Boston Brahmin whose family came over on the Mayflower. But they they hit it off and stayed together through their many different moves for their careers. He's a surgeon now in Washington. They have two daughters, one 17, one 21, both very demanding careers. They live in upper northwest D.C., One interesting fact that I found out while researching her is that she's related uh, by marriage to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. What's their exact relation? I think it's that her husband's twin brother is married to Paul Ryan's sister. Yeah, I think it's Paul Ryan's wife's sister is married to her husband's twin brother. Okay. So, yeah, not not an exact relation. <laughs> okay, thank you. I've read it many times, but I can't remember. <laughs> Looking at her biography, her parents' influence, her childhood, her education, the rulings she's made in the past, what, if anything, can we learn about how she might make decisions on the bench? If confirmed, what kind of approach would she take? Sure. I've spent a lot of time talking with her former law clerks um, who've worked very closely with her in her chambers. And they say it's pretty easy. She always tells them, start with the books. So her office has pretty sets of U.S. code books, and they are not for decoration. She always says, start with the law, uh, then the facts, and um, then that's how she makes her opinions. I think she will be in the mold of Justice Breyer, someone who's on the liberal side, potentially more moderate on certain issues. I think she will be more to the left of Justice Breyer, potentially when it comes to the rights of the accused and criminal defendants based on her time as a public defender. And thank you so much for joining us for this. Thanks for your interest. Anne Marimo covers legal affairs for The Post. Charlotte Freeland is a producer for Can He Do That, a politics podcast here at The Post that you should definitely subscribe to. This story was produced by Sharla and Ted Muldoon. After the break, the latest from the invasion of Ukraine. We'll be right back. Now, one more thing from Ukraine. We're recording this on Friday afternoon, and right now, Russian forces are advancing on the capital of Kyiv. Siobhan O'Grady is one of our reporters on the ground there. We're currently um, sitting inside a blood bank where people have been lined up all day to donate uh, for the military blood supply. A lot of people um, feel that this is their way to contribute considering that so much else is outside of their control. So this is like a converted dentist's office that's now uh, accepting blood. One of the people who waited in line for hours to give blood was Anton Vernuk. He's 33 years old. Uh, I'm here to help Ukrainian army with my blood. Okay. Do you know what blood type you have? Yeah, uh, three plus. Okay. And so you, um, how long did you wait outside in line today? Maybe three hours. Really? Three hours. And it was really cold today, too. Yeah, it's really cold, but some people... uh... Anton told Siobhan that he would pick up a weapon and fight if he has to. But he's hoping that it won't come to that. 
I have three kids, so if I have to, I will fight. I want to ask you and want to ask all people from the United States help Ukraine to uh, block our sky, if you can, and to, to block Russia swift. It's maybe the best things you can do for Ukraine now. Anton is sleeping in a shelter with his kids right now, and they're really young. The youngest is just six months old. So it must be stressful for you to feel like you're responsible for their safety. It's, it's, it's stressful for everyone. My mother just got uh, operation on her knee and she can't move rather fast. So it's also one of the reasons why I uh, can't run. And I tried to help Ukrainian army. I was uh, funding to, uh, to more yesterday. I sent money to uh, Save Life Ukrainian Fund who helps army. I sent money to the new uh, account that Ukrainian National Bank opened. Uh, today I'm here and helping with my blood. When you think about the political situation, are you feeling angry at anyone or are you happy with President Zelensky? Do you think he's done enough? Uh, I think that uh, it's not time for political discussions. We need to fight uh, with Russia. Russia is our enemy. And after we will uh, win, uh, we will discuss the political stuff. After a day of fighting, President Volodymyr Zelensky said that 137 Ukrainians had been killed and more than 300 others had been wounded. That number may continue to rise throughout the weekend. And Zelensky said that Russia was targeting civilian areas, not just military sites. In a video released on Thursday, Zelensky said, quote, We are not afraid of anything. We are not afraid to defend our country. We are not afraid of Russia. Zelensky said he is Russia's top target and his family is number two. He told EU leaders during a video conference on Thursday night that this may be the last time they see him alive. But he said he's still in the capital and his family remains in Ukraine. Shivano Grady is a foreign correspondent for The Post. This story was produced by Alexis Diao and Maggie Penman. This is a rapidly changing story, so please follow The Washington Post online for the latest. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Sean Carter is our engineer. The post-director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.